Thank you for listening and welcome to Variables Unknown Podcast. This is your host, Ed Angelis. And Dr. Noel Miranda. Today we'll be discussing a very interesting topic about One Health Paradigm and its significant importance to our society. So let's get started. Good day to everyone and thank you for listening to Variables Unknown Podcast. Let's probably start by defining on One Health and its value proposition to our digital society. Yes, that's important. Uh, you know, One Health seems to be new, but it's actually an old concept or an approach. And it only became popular when we started experiencing uh, outbreaks of diseases, infectious diseases that uh, have been traced back to animals, infectious diseases that have an animal origin, such as SARS-1, which is uh, traced back to Tibet, and then uh, Nipah, Nipah virus, uh, traced to bats, and then uh, Ebola, traced to apes and non-human primates and uh, some other uh, like avian influenza, swine influenza. So if you recall, Edgar, when we were discussing about the uh, history of pandemics, we were mentioning a lot of these uh, influenzas and COVID, COVID-19. While we are not yet certain if COVID-19 actually spilled, spilled over from an actual animal origin. We know that uh, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-2 viruses have uh, relationships uh, with animal SARS-CoV-2 viruses, closely related to animal SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Just such as what has been identified in pangolins and bats. So because of this nature of diseases, infectious diseases, and you know, if we talk about the future, the potential for infect such infectious diseases to become pandemic threats, then there's that need to study or put attention to uh, the risk management, infectious disease risk management at what we call interface, interface of uh, the animal, human, and ecosystem, with meaning, meaning, meaning the, uh, the interface. I will explain later the interface, uh, but it essentially the, the opportunity for animals, humans, and the ecosystem to actually interact, interact. Therefore, because of that nature and complexity uh, that uh, these th th that the management of uh, such infectious diseases called zoonotic diseases, meaning disease diseases that can be transmitted from animals to man to humans, because of that nature of uh, of of, of uh, transmission uh, within the interface, we know that it is complex. 
that, 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 that the, the phenomenon is complex and requires multi-sectoral collaboration. That's how the concept of One Health becomes justified and considered important. One Health, you know, in the, the collaboration of multi-sectors working together jointly to address uh, the need for uh, management, uh, risk management, and preparedness and response in case there is an out, in case there would be outbreaks, outbreaks of such diseases. So One Health is actually, uh, has been defined uh, by the recently, no, it was redefined recently by the uh, One Health uh, ex, uh, high level expert panel that was formed. It's, it's composed of various individuals, uh, of experts, and they redefined it. But the key words, okay, just, just to finish this question, the key words that we have to take note in that definition would be collaboration, coordination, communication, and capacity building. And I would add command, no? command meaning the governance, the, uh, the actual leadership that would, uh, that would enable effective collaboration, coordination, communication, and capacity building. So 5C, 5Cs, no? uh, if, if you look at it, these are the five important Cs that would define effective One Health, One Health, One Health approach. What are the components of uh, One Health approach, uh, Dr. Well? Yes, and uh, the collaboration is actually made effective through multisectoral and transdisciplinary uh, approach where there would be obviously involved various uh, sectors and disciplines, no? actors, stakeholders, uh, that would be not coming just from the health, health sector, but also coming from the non-health sector, what we call it like, for example, economic sector, the industry, industry uh, actors, those who are actually uh, in, in involved in businesses like uh, mining and, uh, transportation and also uh, you know anything to do with natural resources or agriculture uh, taking care of animals you know, farm farm farming farming animals so all of those actors are actually very relevant to the collaborative uh, approach that one health has to make happen you know, the one health approach has to make happen the, the collaboration the working together the joint uh, effort. Of course, the if you look at the medical medical components, which is the main component, uh, the health component. This has to be a collaboration between the veterinary sector and the human health sector or the medical doctors. They have to find that uh, effective collaboration in doing surveillance, in doing laboratory diagnosis, in doing response, for example, if there's an outbreak. They have to jointly respond to outbreaks. So those are the important key, uh, say, I would say technical components, Edgar. There actually would be the technical and the less technical or the soft, more humanistic, uh, meaning uh, like poverty, you know, who, who would be involved in poverty reduction, 
poverty eradication or reduction. Who would be involved in climate change uh, mitigation as well as climate change uh, adaptation? Who would, who would actually be involved? So we identify the players and the stakeholders, and then we try to build collaboration uh, around the issues, around uh, the drivers that are actually within those particular disciplines no, or sectors. Um, so various, no? I, I cannot name all of these important key uh, elements, but I did mention a few, for example, disaster management, pollution control, uh, pollution management. Uh, the, you know, I, very close to my heart would be the management of indigenous people, the local communities, you know, the lives of indigenous people, uh, providing them livelihood, opportunities to, uh, to still continue hunting for animals because that's their, their lifestyle actually, you know, call for, uh, for them to, do, to, to hunt, to actually get their food from the forest and that has to be managed. So it's a lot of complex issues and the overall, you know, umbrella that enable the, for, for stakeholders to respond together collaboratively, communicate, coordinate, is called One Health. That's really what One Health is all about. How does One Health approach uh, work, uh, Dr. Noel? Okay, so let's go to the, to the other C that I mentioned, the coordination and the command, command and capacity building. So like anything, it requires planning. It requires talking and, and leadership, governance. Um, in reality, okay, to, to, to make operationalization of One Health happen on the ground or practically, operationally, it needs government to actually be at a very high level of uh, organization. In that sense, it needs to have, say for example, some kind of an executive order or an executive uh, uh, commitment, mandate. If, if it's local, it's an it's a ordinance. If it's national, it's a law. Law would allow the government to um, allocate funding, funding so that the different sectors of government, say uh, the Department of Agriculture or Ministry of Agriculture, working together with the Ministry of Health. Now, in the how we find this at the moment is that the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Agriculture are not really all, always talking to about to each other with regards to zoonosis with regards to potential One Health issues, you know, or SARS, for example, uh, the emergence of a pandemic threat. They're not always talking to each other, right? We know that. Not because something has to enable it. Right? There has to be a platform or a mechanism that would enable these uh, two, two, two sectors, at least, to work together. That has to be enabled. Now, without funding coming from a third source, you know, rather than 
funding that you have to take away from each ministry. For example, you take some funding from the Ministry of Health, you take some funding from the Ministry of Agriculture, and take some funding from the Ministry of Environment and Natural Resources, or you know, the ministry involved in uh, managing the ecosystem, the biodiversity. You, it doesn't work. It will, it will not work effectively. If you ask or demand or expect these different individual separate entities uh, to allocate funding, it has, there has to be, I think, number one, an allocation of funding that is deliberately being directed to one health collaboration, coordination, communication, capacity building. It has to be designated. It has to be mandated. Now everything else has to be mandated. Therefore, if you have a law or an ordinance on one health, everything is mandated. The leadership, the coordination, the what we call the designation of roles and responsibilities of the different sectors and, and stakeholders. So what I'm trying to allude to is something one health has to be an institutional mechanism institutionalized and therefore with the with the appropriate institution and when i when we say an institution therefore it's formal right uh i talked about funding i talked about mandates so it's everything's formal it's it's legisl legislated and therefore uh such would then drive the operationalization of one health on the ground practical Practical One Health, not just a concept, not just a concept. What is the most common misconception about One Health, uh, Dr. Rao? Well, I guess One Health just being a concept it cannot just be something, you know, abstract. So one misconception is that it involves maybe just the health sectors, like the veterinary health sector and the animal health. Uh, sorry, human health sector. Uh, it doesn't end there. Uh, another misconception is that, you know, One Health is not exactly public health. And I think it, it has to be driven not only by the health sector, but also by the non-health sector, as I mentioned that. Another misconception is that uh, One Health is, 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 Say, for example, just focus on zoonotic diseases. Actually, it's not. It's focused on every issue, any issue that actually, one, require collaboration among different sectors to solve a problem that would impact on, say, for example, the spillover of diseases. That would, that would impact on food security, for example. Uh, diseases that actually impact on uh, hunger, uh, food security. One example is African swine fever. It's not a zoonotic disease. It's not a disease that actually is transmitted from animal to human. It's, it's not, but it's a disease that can wipe out your entire swine population. Your pig industry will be wiped out by African swine fever. Therefore, people will go hungry. Many local uh, farmers will have no income, no livelihood, they lose their livelihood. And so people, the, co the, the community would go further, deeper into poverty. And 
And therefore, the overall health and well-being of people will deteriorate, will continue to deteriorate. Disasters will bring about deterioration of health. So when there's deterioration of health, overall deterioration, deterioration of health, say driven by poverty, then what do you get? People will look for, you know, say for example, it, it will continue to drive potential spillover of zoonotic diseases because there would be a tendency for local communities or for example, indigenous communities to actually hunt more for food, right? To actually maybe engage in illegal trade of wildlife. And I think the illegal trade of wildlife or illegal wildlife trade is another topic that we can discuss in another episode, uh, Edai, uh, very important. And, and I think this is something which I will not expand, expand on now, but it's, it's also a complex, uh, complex problem that requires a One Health approach. So a lot of misconceptions. One Health, because of the complexity, the wicked problems that are actually driving it, because of that nature of, of, of One Health issues, then you also have a lot of mis, uh, misconception or misunderstanding of one what One Health is all about. How would you define the interface between human and animal, Dr. Rao? Very good. So when I say interface, it's practically any opportunity, therefore any circumstance or setting, physical setting, uh, geographically, for example, that would drive um, say, unnecessary interaction of animals, animal species, or that could be organisms, organisms, uh, living organisms like bacteria and viruses, interacting with humans uh, directly or indirectly, human population, communities, within the context of an ecosystem, local ecosystem, right? Can be, for example, when I say a local ecosystem, it can be a farm setting, it could be the forest, it could be uh, yes, a, a forest where you have uh, in, inhabitants, or you have people living and animals living together and uh, nor which is normal, right? Which is normal. Uh, people, you know, our history is actually, you know, living in the forest, we uh, indigenous people actually are 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 uh, are caretaker of the forest of biodiversity. That's normal. It's normal for indigenous people to hunt, to look for food, and and get their food from uh, nature. Uh, that's normal. We don't want to disrupt that. So anything that disrupts that, anything that disrupts uh, that balance within what I call, usually happens in that interface. So when we, when we refer to the interface, it's actually, I would say, high risk interface. When I say high risk interface, there's a high risk for zoonotic diseases to spill over 
to come about, to emerge. Uh, and, and therefore, when I say it will emerge, it will then um, say cause transmission from animals to humans and humans to humans. So because of, of those various interfaces, uh, wet markets, you know, the market where you have animals being brought into the market, wild animals being brought into the market is an interface where you have wild animals interacting with a livestock, with say poultry and, and pigs in the farm, wild animals interacting like say, for example, rats or uh, wild boars or monkeys, wild monkeys interacting within, you know, with, with other species. That's also an interface. So those are examples of, uh, of, of that animal-human environments and ecosystem interface. Given all the things you've said, uh, Dr. Rao, are there still some unknown interfaces that has not been discovered at this point in time? I would say yes, of course. And, and this would be more like unknown circumstances. Uh, obviously, the the equation or the uh, components of the interface would be the animal, and that's organism, humans, and uh, the environment, the ecosystem would be animal. You know, the ecosystem is actually, it's all encompassing because the ecosystem actually, you know, you have the flora and fauna, and human, human beings being part of the ecosystem. We're all part of the ecosystem. So the ecosystem is actually, uh, you know, you can define a whole number of different interfaces, different scenarios, different uh, permutations of interfaces. But maybe what we are not seeing is how, say, potentially dangerous or pathogenic organisms would have the opportunity to actually come into contact with susceptible uh, species or susceptible organisms, both animals and humans, and susceptibility. And, and so therefore the circumstances is more of the unique, unique circumstances have not yet been explored uh, that would then define certain new interfaces, basically because of the, of, of the changing nature, changing dynamics within the, the micro, you know, the micro ecosystem or certain, uh, you know, isolated ecosystems. How do human behaviors and practices within these interfaces impact on the risk of uh, zoonotic emergence, uh, Dr. Noel? Number one is carelessness, right? Human carelessness, human... Uh, uh, you know, our lack of responsible, responsible and, and moral, morally governed uh, actions. Typically, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to point fingers, but because of the industry that actually disrupts the biodiversity, there are, we know, whether it's legal or illegal, I did mention illegal wildlife trade, which is a careless, irresponsible act of human, humans, of humanity, to actually 
continue to do wildlife trade, that's not necessary. That's not part of the balance. No. I can only think of one type of illegal wild, or not illegal, wildlife trade that needs to happen, which is just the continuation of the balance that is already there, which is how the indigenous people have treated animals, have treated wild animals in, you know, in the past, in, in their history, in the in long history, long civilization, history of their civilization. What we have introduced in modern, during this modern time is, for example, mining, mining, uh, expansion of agriculture, careless expansion of agriculture, encroaching within the wildlife is, I, I believe, is careless. It needs to be regulated. Um, you know, deforestation, because you're going to put up a market or you're going to put up an, an industrial zone or you're going to put up a recreational area, uh, you know, wonderland or something, or you're going to build housing that may not necessarily, you know, have to be built there, but you're, you know, you're destroying the forest or for the sake of building something, industrialization, uh, de development, uh, urbanization. Uh, you, you know, you're building something, uh, a mall in the, in the middle of nowhere. is can be done most of the time very irresponsibly and therefore destroys the balance, disrupts the balance. So those are just, as I said, you know, carelessness, our lack of appreciation of the beauty of nature and, and that we must continue to restore, uh, conserve and protect the beautiful biodiversity that is supposed to be in a state of balance. And we kind of, you know, introduce what I call industrial disruptors, industrial disruptors, because these are just part of industrialization. It's part of development. Development is good as long as it's sustainable and as long as it is renewable. It is done responsibly and, you know, with everything having, you know, the environmental impact studies have been done. We say, you know, there are laws that govern these things, but uh, you know, laws are not well implemented as well. You know, there's, there are regulations that are not properly implemented uh, and, and properly uh, kind of monitored. And so, you know, Edgar. What is the adoption ratio of uh, One Health in Asia Pacific that uh, you have observed, Dr. Novell, as compared to other regions? The uptake, right? Uh, how many nations, how many countries are actually doing it or practicing it? At the moment, very slow. Even with COVID-19 happening, you know, SARS-CoV-2 coming into the picture, I still feel it is still slow, but let's just say this, you know, I, I'd like to look at the bright side and more, you know, think more, kind of being more optimistic about the future of One Health. Certainly there have been great progress trying to promote One Health, both academically in the practical sense, operationally, and in the kind of governance 
sense, meaning uh, through legislations and through uh, proper designing and, and uh, setting up of mechanisms, uh, collaboration, mechanisms for collaboration and coordination. Many countries are now in this stage of trying to develop a formal, what I call, what we call uh, multi-sectoral coordination mechanisms, formal. And they are in this stage. So therefore, because of this, they're trying to improve their legislations and mandates for empowering one health uh, approach within countries and within, within uh, sub-national levels as well as regional. Yeah? I'm, I'm actually part of the regional approach. Also in the Philippines, I'm trying to help in, in, as much as I can. Um, but there, there, has, there, there has to be these, uh, what I call, you know, aspiration and initiatives to actually promote One Health at various levels, uh, various levels uh, of, of, go uh, of governance and various levels of, uh, of, of uh, focus, regional, country, sub-national. Asia, and you know, if you compare it with other parts of the world, I think we're, we're learning and we're actually all, you know, the, the whole world is working together WHO is providing leadership, you know, together what we call the quadripartite, together with FAO, OIE, which is now no longer OIE, it's World, uh, World Animal Health Organization, and then also the environmental, uh, UN Environmental Program, UNEP, is now part of the, what we call the quadripartite. These are the international organizations driving One Health together. Because of COVID, and I don't want to say thank you, you know, thank, thank, thank you for have, you know, having COVID, but we needed to wait for COVID. COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 needed to wake us, wake up everyone. Needed, we needed this wake up call brought about by this pandemic. And therefore, we, everyone realize, realizes that One Health needs to happen and it needs to happen fast. But if COVID did not come, if it did not happen, even, be, even though we know that, you know, a pandemic is gonna happen soon, sooner or later, that it's not about, you know, if, but when, we were talking about an influenza pandemic and it, it happened in 2009, uh, swine flu, they called it swine influenza. Nevertheless, we did not learn and not, you know, not all pandemics are the same, but this one is really pretty bad, right? SARS-CoV-2 is, is, a, is a really kind of a bad experience because of such reality that we know, you know, what we, what we have been studying, what we have been discussing and what we have been proposing as scenarios that's likely to happen, did happen finally happened and we all were caught kind of unprepared. And maybe the question keeps on haunting us, you know, keeps on haunting us that could we have could we have actually prevented this pandemic 
and maybe the you know next pandemic, future pandemics, could we prevent future pandemics if in fact we have a strong One Health, a strong One Health approach is is you know is present in all countries that all countries are able to mount or all countries are doing One Health, implementing One Health operationally in the field together, all the sectors working together, thinking and working together as one, as one. That's the word one is, is so important. How does a One Health approach uh, better prepare us for the future? Well, uh, one is we can only hope, and you know, there's nothing else we can do but to actually depend on a better way to manage risk or to what we call uh, mitigate risk at what we call high risk interfaces. The only way we can do this. Uh, to the knowledge that we have or to, to, to our ability you know, to uh, as much as we are aware of uh, at this point in time in our civilization, maybe there's a better way, but during this moment in our lives, in our, in this, in our, in, in our civilization, in this moment in our, you know, uh, in, in this world as humans, one health is what we believe is the solution. Two, actually one, prevent future pandemics like SARS-CoV-2 from ever happening again. It could be wishful thinking, Edgar, no? could be wishful thinking because keep our fingers crossed, only keep keeping our fingers crossed that hopefully another pandemic will not happen. But look at, you know, just a few months ago, we found monkeypox coming into the picture. Uh, so the question to us, even with one health, will we actually be able to prevent future pandemics? I would say to a certain extent, yes, much better, much better. We will probably do a better job, but can we actually prevent it totally? Once and for all, with one health? Maybe not, right? maybe not because the world is just too complex. And even if we say one health, the question is, can we actually perfect one health, right? Can we actually bring one health to the perfection that, it's, is, it, that we desire, that we aspire for? Again, the, question, the, the answer to that question is possibly not, considering the human, you know, our, our nature as human beings. Can we work together, right? The simple question, can we actually work together? And I, Edgar, I guess, you know, with this note, working together is not something that is governed by art and sciences. Basically, working together, thinking together is governed by human, humanitarianism, empathy, love, right? Love. So the basic question is, do we love one another? Like the commandment of, of God, love your neighbor as much as yourself, or love, yeah. love, love, uh, 
everyone, love. But are we able, are we capable of loving? So yeah, that's an open-ended you know, question. From your perspective, uh, Doc, why does One Health approach so important? And your word of advice on this regard? It's, it's important because there is, you know, it, you can actually relate One Health to another movement that is, has arisen, planetary health, I guess. And if you've seen the movie, the movie uh, Don't Look Up, you know, where this meteor is coming to Earth and it's going to hit Earth and we know it's going to hit Earth. It's a huge, you know, huge uh, rock uh, coming to pound on us. And when it hits, it hits us, it's all over. This is what it's One Health is all about. When something bigger than COVID-19, bigger than SARS-CoV-2 hits us and it tells us it's all over. It's going to tell us this is coming, it's big and it's going to be all over. That's the kind of scenario that we don't want. And when I say this, it's scary because what I did not mention prior is that Zoonotic diseases can be deliberately released, okay? And maybe this is another topic. Deliberate, being bioterrorism, bioterrorism. We don't know. Somebody out there is manufacturing uh, something that is uh, what we call a bioweapon. Remember when we were watching this movie, uh, uh, Contagion? Where the guy said, you know, you don't need to weaponize bird flu, I think, you know, we don't need to weaponize, the birds are doing it. We don't need to weaponize this virus because the birds are doing it. It's like, you know, but, but think about if it's weaponized, if, if it's deliberate, that's more scary than, than, than something that's happening naturally that we cannot prevent because, you know, because of those, the complexity. But deliberate, deliberately man-made release of a pathogen that can actually wipe out the entire humanity from this planet is something real, but something can be prevented because it's all about us understanding how we relate to one another, relationship, you know, building good relationships, taking away geopolitics, taking away greed, taking away, uh, you know, the divide between nations, superior, the superior country versus the, in, in, the, the inferior nations. The races, you know, the racial uh, separation, white and other colors from, you know, brown, black, yellow, the separation of nations and the separation of people. If that continues to happen, then we continue to drive this conflict that we have, that we have, we find ourselves in, and we continue to deplete uh, the opportunity for for man to actually continue to exist in this planet. 
simply because we are actually creating our own you know, destruct, dis destructive uh, ending or destructive destiny uh, you know, in, in, in this planet, uh, this beautiful planet that we are all living in. So just, I don't want to, you know, that's maybe part of that is science fiction. But uh, One Health is all about that. It's trying to prevent something catastrophic from really happening. Uh, not even close to what we think, what we experience now with COVID-19. Very well said, Doc Noel. This concludes our podcast episode today and thank you for listening. Hope you have relevant takeaways. Thank you for listening to Variables Unknown Podcast. This is your host, Ed Angelus. And Dr. Noel Miranda. We would like to hear from you. Share us your thoughts regarding our topics and send us a message on the Anchor Voice message box. Your message could end up in a future podcast episode. Make sure you never miss any episodes of Pin Circle by clicking the subscribe button. And follow us on Spotify, Anchor.fm and other affiliated podcast platforms. Let's catch up again soon.